Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and for the last several weeks we've been looking, uh, the first two chapters, at the, really the infancy and early life of Jesus. And this week we come now to chapter 3 and the ministry of John the Baptist. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. Uh, again, chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to keep going for a little while. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall, be, shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers who asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's a lot here. There's a lot going on that I, I can't possibly cover all in this one uh, sermon. Even so, I pray that as we just sang, that our eyes would be upon Jesus, that you would turn us in that direction, that in turn you, O Lord, would be amongst us, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to move in our hearts, and perhaps even like the tax collectors, and like the Roman soldiers, that our hearts might be pierced and we might want to repent. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke begins this section by 
locating the ministry of John the Baptist within really significantly bigger political and spiritual heavyweights, at least as the world would have saw things at that time. So the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was roughly AD 29, and to the Greek-speaking world of the Roman Empire at that time, Tiberius was the most powerful man on the planet. Uh, Pontius Pilate was the governor, or as he's often called, a prefect over Judea. Herod was tetrarch over Galilee to the north of Judea. Philip was tetrarch over the area just north of Galilee, what is called Ituria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was even a little bit farther northeast from there in Abilene. So in other words, what we typically think of as Israel in the Old Testament was under the dominion of Tiberius Caesar, who in turn gave authority uh, to these four rulers who owed their allegiance to Rome. Now added to this, Luke includes Annas and Caiaphas as high priest. And we talked about this really some months ago in our study uh, in John, but it's, it's worth repeating. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, and at this moment in the story, and this is true throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, he was the high priest. Now Annas, uh, his father-in-law, had been high priest years earlier, but he had been deposed of that post by the Romans, which means the Romans said, we're not using you anymore, and they kicked them out, um, which was not their role to take, but they did it anyway. Now, by using the single word for high priest here, and your translate, the translation I read, the ESV said priesthood, which is fine, but it's just a single word here, high priest. Luke was indicating that the official high priest, Caiaphas, and his father-in-law, Annas, who was kind of the power behind the power, so to speak, well, they both exerted influence and power through the same office, and therein the temple itself. It's why, for example, if you'll remember in John's gospel, when Jesus was arrested, he was first taken to Annas and then officially taken to Caiaphas. Well, the reason that Luke includes these two men, Annas and Caiaphas, is because they were the Jewish, as opposed to the Roman, heavyweights who had spiritual authority over Israel. So in short, just with these short little verses, he's not just saying it's, it's AD 29. That's the time it was. If he wanted to say that, he would have said that. No, what he is indicating is that the world at large and the land of Israel and then the center of Israel, which is the temple, and you should see this as kind of concentric circles, you should see them that how they were under the power, in many ways, of the serpent. And in turn, the word of the Lord doesn't come to any of these places, not to the world or Rome, not to the centers of power in Israel itself, but to John in the wilderness. And this is not what we expect, but this is what God does. The wilderness is not merely the place John happened to be, as if he liked camping. Right? John was purposely in the wilderness, ranging around the Jordan River Valley, much like what we see with Israel in the book of Numbers and really the beginning of Joshua. The history of much of that wilderness wandering, if you know your Old Testament, is a story of God's continual faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness and outright rebellion against God. It's like the story of the 12 spies sent out to spy out Canaan who came back and said, listen, it's an awesome land, but there's no way we can take that. Our God is not strong enough. 
and in God's judgment on their unfaithfulness. Now, keep in mind, they had witnessed firsthand God conquer the strongest nation in the world at that time, Egypt, liberating them from slavery and death. In God's judgment, that generation that said, there's no way God can take this, they died in the wilderness, never getting to the promised land. But their children, this was the book of Joshua, they were faithful and they were poised to take the land. Now, the conquest of the promised land with that generation basically works like this. First, it begins with the re-giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's, it's second law, deuteronomos, right? Second law. It's the second giving of the law, and it's really a marriage renewal of the vows given at Exodus 19 with the first giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. Then you see them setting apart a new leader in Joshua who shares the same name with Jesus. Jesus is the Latin version of Joshua. Then a new set of spies were sent out who were faithful and believed God could take the land. Then you have the crossing of the Jordan River, which was like a new crossing of the Red Sea, and really, in many ways, is kind of like a, a new baptism. Then you have the memorial of 12 stones that were set up, like we so often see the patriarchs doing in the book of Genesis, which was both a monument to God's faithfulness and also a site of worship. But then the new generation was circumcised, marking them off as the heirs of the promise of Abraham. Remember, the promise is for you and your children. And then Passover was celebrated in the promised land, and the manna, in turn, ceased. And then the commander of the Lord's army showed up and led Israel in the conquest of Jericho, which included some Gentiles among Israel who, who turned to the true God. So John's ministry actually assumes that story. It assumes that, that history. And his role was to prepare the people of God for the new and better Joshua, Joshua who would bring his people, including the Gentile world, into a far better promised land. See, the promised land was never simply, you're going to get a spot of land, and isn't it great? It was always for the purpose of bringing the Gentiles to God. And God was not going to stop with that, that hunk of rock in the Middle East. He was taking back the whole world. So this Joshua is bringing a far better promised land, the promised kingdom of God that would have no end. And that's essentially what new creation is, among other things. And what's fascinating, again, is that this, this word of the Lord came not to the sinners of power, but to a nobody prophet. A nobody prophet who had purposely taken on the look and demeanor of Elijah crying out in the wilderness, not unlike Lady Wisdom of Proverbs crying out in the streets, that the time of Israel's redemption was at hand. That is, everything that Isaiah looked forward to among all the prophets was happening. So get ready. Get ready. Here it comes. And this, again, is part of that great reversal theme of the Gospels that you can see in all of them. And you can hear it even in the language from Isaiah and that Luke quotes. He says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. That's the reversal. That's the reversal. Those who had no God will have God. Those who were crooked, right? Those who were in their sin will be made straight. They will be made holy and righteous. Now, Luke mentions that, that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was different than what Jesus instituted as a sacrament 
for his church, though it assumes it. As John said, I baptize with water. Jesus will baptize with the Spirit and fire. Now, next week, we're going to spend time on the differences between John's baptism and the baptism Jesus receives in the very next verses in, in Luke 3 and the baptism that Jesus instituted and continues to this day. But for now, it's enough to see that what John was doing was very much like a purification ritual in which people set themselves apart, not unlike Simeon and Anna from chapter 2 in the temple, if you remember them, who had been living in anticipation, prayer, and fasting on the coming of the Messiah. This is intent, purposely, this baptism is an anticipation of the new Red Sea crossing that was coming in Jesus. Now, John's baptism was not in itself for the forgiveness of sins. It looked forward to the Messiah and the forgiveness he would bring. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament looked forward to this forgiveness through the Messiah. It's why the Levitical sacrificial system finds its meaning and its completion in Jesus. That's, that's the book of Hebrews. That's what Warren and Calvin are teaching right now in, in adult Sunday school. So what John was doing was, was not then uh, unlike what other prophets, like say Jonah, did in that he announced the coming arrival of God, really the coming judgment of God. I mean, after all, he asked the Pharisees and Sadducees who came out to see him, and we get this specifically from Matthew's account too, who warned, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So think about that. Jesus brings redemption, but he also brings wrath. He brings both, and both are, are judgments. So Jesus, as John points, at, points out, brings salvation, and that's the point we're used to. But that, there's also judgment. There's, there's redemption and God's wrath. So like how fire, and this is an image he uses here, like how fire can be both purifying and, and life-giving, so too can it be deadly, burning up the life of those engulfed in it. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Like we see at the burning bush, he is an unquenchable fire. So like Joshua, John is essentially asking, who will you serve, Israel? Who will you serve, the true God and his coming Messiah, or something or someone else? Well, Luke links John the Baptist to the prophet Isaiah and puts together Isaiah 40, 57, 49, 45, and tags on Zechariah chapter 4 as well, all of which, with those prophecies, have to do with the restoration of Israel to communion with her God. Because that's ultimately what salvation is. It's communion with God. It's life with God. And in turn, the ushering in of new creation for both Jew and Gentile and really all of creation. So for good reason, just think about this now. This has been going on the entire Bible. For good reason, the animal kingdom and humanity figured in both the redemption of Noah and the redemption of Nineveh through Jonah. God is concerned about bringing life to all of creation. And those are, by the way, two real historical moments that point forward to the ultimate new creation that is coming with the Messiah. So Jesus is not merely about the elevation of our souls. He is for nothing short of the resurrection of this world to life and communion with him. What the devil sought to destroy and mar, God refuses to give up on. 
Well, in Luke 2, Simeon's prophecy to Mary was that her son, Jesus, was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and that he would be like a sword piercing through the heart of the nation that revealed the hearts of the people. And we see this already happening in John's ministry. In verse 7, John calls the crowds a brood of vipers. And in Matthew, John says this specifically of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and later Jesus says the same thing against the Pharisees and the scribes, that is, the professional scholars, the lawyers, and, and the Jewish law and all that. But here, Luke has John addressing all the crowds this way. And for some, like we see with Peter's preaching at Pentecost, it pierced them to the depths of their hearts, and they wanted to know what they could do to repent. How can we turn to God, is what they asked. And we see the same thing here. Now, as an aside, this is one of the ways that, that a person can know if the Spirit is at work within them. If when presented with the plain teaching of God's Word, we are convicted or cut to the marrow, or conversely, that we are encouraged or built up in confidence, that we can actually find joy in it, that's evidence that God is with us. So if you've ever had the experience, like I did as a new Christian, of reading Romans 1 through 3 and thinking, that's me. That's me. That's the Spirit at work, convicting you and showing you who you are and who your God is. But for others in John's audience, namely among the Jewish leadership, the preaching did not resonate with them. They were not cut to the heart. Or worse, like Pharaoh in Egypt, it further hardened them, hardened them in their sin. Even so, we get a good idea of who the brood of vipers comment was most clearly directed towards because John continues with bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham the people least likely in the crowds to say Abraham is my father are the tax collectors and the soldiers Tax collectors were, of course, traitors to the Jewish people, and Roman soldiers were Gentiles who oppressed the Jewish people. And as you notice, when, when they say, what can we do? He tells them, don't abandon your jobs. Do them with justice. Do them right. Do them in light of your God. It's fascinating. Uh, no, the ones who... who who are most likely uh, to make an appeal to their Jewish heritage and traditions, not tax collectors, not Romans or Gentiles. It's as Paul so pointedly notes in Romans and Galatians, are people like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. And of course, Paul, when he was Saul, absolutely did this himself. And as we talked about in the sermon series from really last year on the lies of identity and union with Christ, it was not so much that people like the Pharisees thought they could perfectly keep the law and thus earn salvation with God. It was more so they thought their Jewishness got them some kind of social capital among their peers and thus gave them a, a higher status. So they weren't concerned with how, how God saw them so much as their Jewish culture saw them. So the criticism John is throwing down is similar to prophets like Jeremiah who pointed out the emptiness of Judah's, the southern kingdom's orthodox worship 500 years previous to this. In Jeremiah's day, the elites didn't worship Baal. 
or Ashtoreth. You get that in, like in the book of Judges, for example, and you get that in the northern kingdom, but in the southern kingdom, not so much. Instead, they treated the temple like a talisman, like how some Christians in our town treat the Bible or their baptism. You know, they've got a Bible. They, they know a few verses. They have a T-shirt from their baptism that says, I decided. And those things give them standing in the community. It's something they can point to like a trophy. And when push comes to shove or say their life is demanded of them, they will point to a T-shirt or an attendance at a youth rally as proof of their goodness. It's not unlike 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5 where the Israelites attempted to defeat the Philistines, really their perpetual enemy during this time, by pulling the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and putting it in front of the army. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of, of God's presence. In fact, the top of the Ark represented his footstool. His throne was in heaven, so get the imagery. His throne is in heaven. His feet are on the top of the Ark. It's his footstool. And it was called the Mercy Seat. Isn't it telling that God names it not his judgment throne, but his Mercy Seat? That tells you a lot about the character of God. And so Israel thought they could manipulate God's presence through the ark and beat their enemies with it. Let's take the ark. We'll go beat our enemies. God will be forced to work through this ark for us. We'll win. And, of course, they were totally whipped by the Philistines, and the ark was captured because God cannot be manipulated or used. I would love to go into the next section because it's really funny of that part of 1 Samuel, but... Let me encourage you, just go read it. God winds up conquering the Philistines without Israel. It's really funny. Anyway, in Jeremiah's day, the truth of Jerusalem's heart was revealed not so much in how they treated worship, but in how they treated their lives outside of that worship and how they lived their lives outside of the temple. That is how they treated the poor and the widow and the orphan or where they looked to for protection with countries like Egypt. So they might be singing Psalm 46, but they walk out the temple and deny it with where they put their allegiances. It's why John told the crowds in our passage today, including the tax collectors and soldiers, repentance looks like the second half of the Ten Commandments. If you have no other gods than the true God, if you repent and turn to Him and His Messiah, guess what? You will seek to keep the other nine commandments, which includes how you treat your neighbors. But John doesn't merely say, don't think your heritage will do anything for you. He goes a step further by first calling them a brood of vipers. And then says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, brood of vipers doesn't mean anything to us. Right? You could call me that. And I'm like, okay, buddy. For them, this was a slap. It's a clear allusion to the serpent of the garden. And, and by the way, that serpent shows up multiple times and in multiple ways throughout the Old Testament. And it's why Jesus in John 8 tells the scribes and the Pharisees that if Abraham was actually their father, they would do the sorts of things that Abraham did. But as is, their real father is the devil, the father of lies, the serpent from the garden. You see, Abraham believed God, was in many ways a priest in Canaan who declared the true God to the Gentiles and walked in God's ways. By Jesus and John's reckoning, that's not the Pharisees, though they thought it was. No, in their view, Israel's so-called and self-proclaimed shepherds were children of the devil. If that wasn't bad enough, 
Stone, that's being used here, that term for stone, was often a slang term for Gentile. And so John was saying something akin to what Paul says. It's not blood that counts, but faith working itself out in love. And so if the Jews won't turn to the Messiah, the Messiah will turn to the Gentiles. In Deuteronomy, God threatens Israel that if she chases after other gods, he will eventually exile his people from the land. This happened, by the way. And in turn, go to the Gentiles and make them the children of promise, which was something he was keen to do through Israel anyway. But such a move would be both judgment on Israel, but also cause Israel to be jealous for what God was doing among the Gentiles. This is exactly what Jonah was afraid was happening when God sent him to Nineveh. And it's exactly what Paul, who is very much kind of a new Jonah, talks about in relation to the Jews in Romans 9 through 11. You can even see the same pattern at work with the Jews being sent to Babylon, which is in fulfillment of that passage in Deuteronomy. Through Daniel's ministry, God converts Nebuchadnezzar for the good of Israel and the world. And it's very much like how Joseph influenced Pharaoh in Egypt for Israel's good. And God tells his people to be, in turn, in submission to Babylon. And yet many Jews said, no way. And they resisted and rejected this to their peril, and the temple was raised to the ground. So when John says the axe is laid to the root of the trees, that's judgment language against Israel. Israel throughout the Old Testament is spoken of as God's vineyard. And you see Jesus talking this way, for example, in the parable of the tenants and the cursing of the fig tree, both of which are in Matthew 21. Go read it. Of course, Jesus famously speaks of good trees bearing good fruit and evil trees bearing bad fruit in the Sermon on the Mount too. This is language all over the Bible. That's what's in view here. Unfaithful Israel, much like her ancestors, is facing either God's redemption or judgment, either repentance or death. And John keeps going in verses 17 and 18 with language that riffs on, on Psalm 1, that the Messiah carries a winnowing fork, fork and like a good farmer, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat is stored in God's house and finds life, but the chaff will be burned up by unquenchable fire. I cannot imagine that John was a popular preacher. I just can't. Holy cow, it was that rough, but it is precisely what Israel needed to hear. So this sort of old school, which it was, prophetic preaching causes the people to, to start to question whether John might be the Christ, the promised Messiah, which was something he flatly rejected. And it's not that John thinks he's worthless, and it's, it is kind of possible to get ahead of that, that Jesus is so great, and that's right, Jesus is so great. But I don't think John's answer in his rejection of, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah, is simply that he is so great, though he is. It's rather he thinks the Messiah is the only one who can actually redeem his people. The commentator Arthur just sees a hint, believe it or not, of Boaz in this moment that I think helps bring light to why John says what he says. Here's what Arthur just notices. He writes, in Ruth 4... When Boaz redeems Ruth, he receives the sandal from the next of kin of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, who was not willing to buy her back. This was common practice. We're to us 
Nobody does this this way, but to them, this was common practice. The receiving of the sandal by Boaz from the next of kin was a testimony that he had bought her back. Luke tells us that the people were wondering if John was the Christ. John responds that he is not the Christ and says that he is not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal and receive it as the one worthy of buying back humanity. John may be the next of kin from the perspective of the Old Testament. He's the older cousin. But Jesus is the Redeemer. So John the Baptist rightly understands that his role is subservient to Jesus who has come to redeem his people and the world. He doesn't even have the right to touch that sandal. It's all his, even as he recognizes that his role is costly. And we read in verses 19 and 20 that like a good prophet should, John preached truth to power to the self-styled Jewish king Herod, calling out his sexual deviancy. And in response, Herod imprisoned him for it. And eventually he will behead him for this. And this is the sort of things that prophets were supposed to do. And, and so many of them, like Elijah to King Ahab, risked their lives doing it. Now, as you can gather, there's so much going on in this passage. And there are things I haven't even touched on that I'm going to have to touch on next week. Even so, let me just highlight something practical. Practical as we end, having looked at this really deep literary uh, passage. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's just not. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Either you follow him or you don't. If you're halfway about it, you know, like, like the letter to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, Jesus sees that halfwayness that tepidness, this lukewarmness, as sickening. And it makes him want to vomit. That's his words, not mine. And what so many people see as, as non-choice, or as a friend from St. Louis used to say, he was joking, but he wasn't, can't we just have a casual faith Friday? You know, can't we just let go a little bit? Like God's got us, can't we just have a good time for a change? Where we're a little bit lax with our lives? That's the way sinful humanity wants to see it, but that is not the way Jesus sees it. And this is where so many people actually are who claim to be Christians. But the reality is either you are for him or you are against him. And either position will be reflected in your life and how you structure your time and your energy and your ethics and how you parent your children and what priorities you make and how you spend your money. And how you engage with your neighbors, who are so often also our enemies. There is never a moment in our lives which it does not have bearing on our relationship to God. We love to kid ourselves that it's true, but it's not. If you go back to what John says, in anticipation of what Jesus says, the God-centered, Messiah-centered life is not perfection. It's a life of repentance, of continually turning back to Jesus for forgiveness and growth and righteousness and life itself. All of life is centered on Jesus. And in a certain sense, all of life looks like the confession of sin and assurance of pardon, day in, day out. That life with God, it begins in worship here. It begins in worship together with the people, and it works its way outward into our families and our neighbors and our church and our work. And, and we live this way not because we think it gains us anything, we don't have a t-shirt for this. 
We've already gained everything because we've been baptized into him. No, we live this way, not in anticipation of Jesus' first coming, like John's audience, but in anticipation of his second coming, as people who have already been baptized in his spirit and with fire and wait for him with patience to fully redeem and resurrect his creation. And that day is coming. It's coming. And as the church has been praying since his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Well, let's go to him in prayer, and let's pray that. Heavenly Father, it is hard to confess and to live out Psalm 46. It is hard to live out and confess that you are our rock, a cleft for me, and to trust. I pray for all of us here that we would trust, that we would see, that our hearts would be pierced even and moved to want to follow and to trust and to walk in your ways and to center all of life on you. And Lord, we live in anticipation of that second coming, and so we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But if you tarry, as the ancients say, may we have patience to endure as you wait your coming. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.